Hello and welcome. I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. And we are still knee deep in tech. And this is episode 75, recorded on June the 3rd, 2019. Indeed. And uh, since Alexander have some kind of disease I can't pronounce in English. Pneumonia. Pneumonia, exactly. Uh, it affects his voice in a very um, interesting way. Maybe he sounds he more raw as usual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think he, he he is the definition of hard rock, or probably. Yeah, right now at least. Yeah. <laughs> so it's myself and Tony this time, and we have a fully packed episode. This time, since Alexander isn't here, we will be focusing on the workplace first and foremost. But we will, of course, mention Alexander as well. So, how's your week been since that amazing episode with Andy last week, Tony? Um, it's been pretty good. Uh, I've mostly been deep diving still, uh, like I mentioned before, in the binary tree software, AD migration. Uh, that has been my primary focus, and it probably will be for a considerable time moving forwards as well. So I have not been too much into Microsoft tech. I've been trying to troubleshoot some always-on VPN stuff, which is client-related in this case. Uh, more specifically, my own client, which doesn't <laughs> doesn't want to make any connections because of you know issues with opening the phone book file or some weird stuff like that. So. I haven't had too much time to put on it, but I've, I've been trying to fiddle around with that um, a little bit last week. Yeah, and and, and that's, that's actually something we could try to clarify for for the audience. And this is out of the blue for you, but I hope you can pick up this one. Yeah. So I get a huge amount of questions in regards to always on VPN. Yeah. Since that's, according to Microsoft, the future of connectivity. Uh, and we have a number of customers that currently run direct access, as an example. Yeah. So how are you viewing always on VPN? How good is it? Will it be a good replacement for direct access? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I have at the moment a little bit of mixed thoughts about that. Uh, I suppose if you look at the long term, yeah, I think they will work out all the kinks and stuff uh, since they are actually putting focus on it uh, at the time. Um, I'm not sure how much Microsoft itself is actually pushing the technology. I think it sounds sometimes more like rumor based around Microsoft people who work with Microsoft tech. All of them are just giving doomsday reports for direct access uh, uh, all the time. You know, oh, you have to change right now. Come on, switch over to always on VPN. Come on, people, it's no hurry. Direct access is still a role in server 2019, so it won't die out for at least another nine years. So there's no rush going over, but I can understand people doing like more proof of concept stuff with always on VPN. And like you said, we have a few customers that are uh, on board with that. Um, maybe not all the direct access customers necessarily, but uh, many other customers that are using like third party VPN solutions that have license costs uh, attached to them. So uh, that's a, a pretty good way to go over to and try out always on VPN and see if that works uh, fine for you and your customer base and your scenario. Uh, so I'm not discouraging people from going to always on VPN, but just know that there are still more than a few quirks and issues with it. And, and what would you consider being the, the biggest blockers for always on VPN, if you're considering it? Um, well, I suppose, first of all, you have to think about the connectivity stuff, right? So uh, 
if you want to use the device tunnel, you are more or less stuck with using IPsec, which demands that UDP 500 and 4500 are actually open at the location that you are sitting at. Uh, that's not always the case. Uh, for example, you know, airports, hotels and those kind of places. Usually, you know, HTTPS is always open in every place which direct access uses. However, if you're not uh, relying on device tunnel and only using the user tunnel, you can actually use SSTP instead, which uses the same port. So that might be an issue for some, but others just might not care. Yeah. Uh, but, but in my... In my experience, the reason that many customers chose direct access were because of the device tunnel more than the user tunnel. Uh, they wanted control on their devices. They wanted GPOs to apply. They wanted config manager management. And all of these are, of course, solvable in other ways. But in my in my experience, that was the main reason rather than applications. Oh, yeah, yeah. Most likely, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and and I would um, struggle to not being able to connect from an from an uh, hotel. Yeah, and the one other reason is of course manage out. So there there yeah. might be scenarios where the administrators uh, on site might be uh, might need to get access to a computer that is not logged on for the moment. Yeah, exactly. And and um, as I see it, in the long run, and this is a discussion I'm always having with our, my customers that. In the long run, we won't need VPN. We won't need direct access because many solutions and systems and applications will be reachable over internet with Azure AD application proxy, as an example. And um, in terms of files, file access, we have placeholders and um, the um, new features to OneDrive, to SharePoint, and so on to sync uh, files. So in, in the long run, I see it as this is something that we implement now while we transition to a real cloud-based networking solution, regardless if that cloud is on-prem or a public cloud. Uh, yeah, I can actually absolutely agree with that uh, in the long term. Uh, yep. But there will still always be customers that are not cr cloud-friendly at all. So they will still be needing some sort of solution going forward as well. Uh, so yep. we can't just leave them behind. So there has to be some solution which works on-prem as well. Absolutely. So moving on. It's a new week and therefore we have news in Intune and Intune for Education. And uh, do you know what Intune for Education is? Uh, not really. I suppose it's the same Intune with a different license thing or something? Yeah, sort of, kind of. Intune for Education as you say, is, is a separate license. For many schools, that's something that's included in their um, licensing that they buy for their staff and teachers. And then all the students gets it. It's basically, from an administrator point of view, a much easier interface. So it's intended for teachers, in some cases, to actually use it and manage their own class uh, in terms of iPads and Windows PCs, because those two are the only ones that are actually supported in Intune for Education. Okay. But it's an easier interface, which enables you to delegate permissions and access to persons that may not be as IT-focused as an administrator. 
and it also enables you to easily set up and provision large number of devices uh, depending on the the class they where they will be used the subject where you will use them and so on so in, in my opinion it's a really really neat feature that may have flown under the radar for some since the ios support was added rather late in the beginning it was only windows okay uh, but now in may they've added three new features or extended three new features we can now see if a microsoft store for business app and this is for windows of course is offline or online licensed in most cases i would recommend that you online license apps since that will enable you to use the windows microsoft store for business fully to manage updates and so on but in some cases where you don't want to connect your devices to the microsoft store for business or when you have offline scenarios or something like that you may be forced to use the offline licensed apps and therefore you can now see which apps you have deployed how they are licensed and therefore manage them in different ways so it's in my opinion a kind of a niche feature especially in sweden i would say where most of the devices are always connected to the internet but i see the use case for them where as i said have where you have offline scenarios right right we also have a bunch of new ios settings which is something i again from a swedish perspective really like most of our schools are still using ios devices i would say especially in the lower grades um, they are now being replaced by either chromebooks or windows pcs in a number of schools but they are still the bulk device type i would say for most of the schools in sweden right do you agree on that or do you uh, see yeah, another uh, movement uh, no, i know i suppose you're right i don't really work that much uh, that much with the schools in particular uh, so i don't have any real insights in there uh, but those times that i have had con contact with schools i think it's been mostly dominated by ios i think so yeah yeah, yeah. and also something that's really neat and that many will love i remember this must be like four or five years ago when I did a rather large Intune implementation for a municipality or really three municipalities and where we ended up using device enrollment program. At that time, every single iPad, in this case they were using about a thousand of them, was named iPad. Ooh. Nothing else. Ooh. Which made it kind of hard to manage. <laughs> Yeah. If you were going for a device-centric approach, which <laughs> you at that point kind of needed to have because of some limitations in Intune. But things have changed. Uh, thank, thank you for that uh, over the last years. Uh, and now you can manage iPads in any way you like using Intune and Intune for Education. But what was introduced in Intune for Education last week were naming templates. Okay. So basically, you can force iPads to be named after their serial number. And if you like, you can add a prefix to that. Well, that sounds convenient. Yeah, that will make things a lot easier. Uh, you still probably would like to manage them on a user-per-user -user basis, but you definitely can see use cases for a device-centric approach. But as I see it, you then would be 
forced to use the prefix because the serial number number would tell you as much as the name iPad. Yeah, pretty uh, much. If if you care about what's on the iPads, if you have just a thousand iPads doing the exact same thing but used in different classes, that may not be an issue an issue for you. But if you have a number of different classes with different configuration of configurations of iPads, then this would be really useful. And if you then add the prefix to it, that makes life so much easier. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of Intune. We have a, a number of new features there as well over the last two weeks. The most important thing, and this I want to make perfectly clear, if you that are listening currently are using CSV Upload to add devices to Autopilot, you have been using the um, tag Order ID to group devices in Autopilot. And that the Order ID was basically a way to for a reseller to tag devices in a specific order so it would make life easier for you to add them to a specific autopilot profile. That tag or header has now changed to group tag. So that's something you need to change if you have automated that entire process. So change order ID to group tag since that will be the um, way to manage and upload them moving forward. And the reason for that change is basically that you may not like the term order ID and it may may make things unclear. Group tag is much easier to understand what it actually does. Okay, but will the portal actually report an error if you try to upload uh, CSV using yeah. order ID? Yes, it will. Okay. Yeah. So you, you need to change it to make it work. Yep. And it's a small change, but if you have an automation workflow that may be something that you should change. And we also now have a new report on, and I really like this one on Android, report on potentially harmful apps that you can now extract a report showing you potentially harmful apps that are installed on your managed Android devices. So what would those harmful apps be? Like anything created by Apple? (laughs) <laughs> on android for sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think that that would be a, a challenge uh, but it, it could be anything it can be apps that behave in a way that may be harmful so say that they are using permissions that may be harmful they are connecting back to an ip address that are considered to be harmful or something like that so it may not be harmful but the behavior of the app would be considered harmful from an Intune perspective. Okay, uh, would that also report apps uh, that, for example, a weather application uh, that shows you the weather uh, that is still uh, trying to access your phone, for example? Yeah, it could be. That could be one of the use cases for it. Uh, and I have a number of those quite interesting. My My Android phone actually warned me that my Pizza Hut app were using the camera. <laughs> okay. Or microphone. I think some, some <laughs> one of those two. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. <laughs> and I get if Twitter wants to use it, but I don't get why Pizza Hut would like me to would like to use my camera. Yeah, because that's actually one of those things that I get surprised by sometimes. You know, uh, when I download an app for some very specific purpose, and it asks me right away, uh, I need to access your contacts. No, you don't. Yeah. You have nothing no. to do with my contacts. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But I still, that, that... My, my, 
general uh, idea is probably that most users don't even care. They just click accept on anything. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a fearful thing, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that um, Johan Dahlbom and, and Stefan Scherling usually takes up in their um, securing Azure Active Directory sessions that users don't read what they grant access to when they add new Azure Active Directory apps either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so basically, you can add whatever you like in that list. The user won't read it, and they will add everything uh, inside of that. But I, I think that the the issue, the core challenge in this is laziness. That why have so many organizations grounded too many uh, domain admins into AD? Because oh. everything will work. Yeah, don't get me started with that. <laughs> I I still meet them. It's rather amusing. Yeah, they are out there, definitely. Yeah, and, and the same with global admins in Azure AD. And here, if you develop an app, just give me all permissions because I may be needing them in a future release. <laughs> so when I want to uh, take a picture of my uh, pizza uh, and uh, it could be uh, <laughs> if you need to return the pizza, I wasn't happy with this one because <laughs> of the... The pepperoni being sideways or whatever. So take a picture and report it back. Uh, yeah, not sure. <laughs> not sure about that. <laughs> sideways pepperoni. That's the name of this episode, probably. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> and speaking about phones, over May, we have been given three new releases when it comes to uh, insider preview builds uh, on May 10th, 15th, and 29th. And all of these have been mainly focused on the Your Phone experience. Are you using Your Phone? Uh, no, I was actually a little bit of curious how you could uh, make that uh, transition. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've seen the app on the, on from, the computer. From, yeah, from yeah. my phone to your phone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, and many things have been added. So we now have screen duplication as an example on android and screen control so we can now navigate our phone from our pc many of these features are now also supported over uh, lte which is really useful and in the latest preview that were released last friday they've also added a bunch of um, accessibility features so keyboard language layout um, screen reading, focus tracking, uh, and a lot of other things. And also new phones have been added. So currently you need to have a Windows 10 PC with Bluetooth, a minimum of the build 18.3.3.8 for everything of this to be supported. The Android phone must be on. And <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> within Bluetooth range of the PC and connected to the same network as the PC. Some features, as I said, are available over LTE as well. But it's also currently limited to a number of Samsung Galaxy devices and the OnePlus 6 and 6T. So not all devices are supported, but many of them, or the, the most commonly used enterprise phones, I would say currently are supported. We, we are lacking a number of devices, I'm absolutely sure of that. But I think many, many run Samsung. 
Of course, a number of our listeners probably run Huawei as well. And that's a discussion for another episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed, indeed. Because I, that, that's... I actually run the uh, Samsung S8 still that I bought at Ignite. Yeah, yeah. I remember how proud you were of that one. It was it was a great phone. Yeah, it's a it few still years is. old now, but uh, I still works just fine. Yeah, absolutely. So no issues with that. And uh, nope. the Your Phone app sounds actually pretty good, uh, pretty interesting. Um, yep. I'm not sure about it used like in a daily scenario, really. But then again, using it in demos and like stuff like that, it would be actually uh, very good. Yeah, and I have a really good scenario for when to use it. Okay. Because in some way, and someone that knows either Android or your phone or SMS in general <laughs> can can probably answer this. If I receive the a multi-factor code over text message that's actually visible in in my your phone app on my pc before it actually reaches my phone okay so like a half a second before it can actually be more than a half a second it can be like several seconds okay uh, which means that I get quicker multi-factor authentications <laughs> if I've misplaced my keys where I have my YubiKey. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, that, that's a good use case. Um, I <laughs> use it to be in control, I would say, because my, my wife, if it's an emergency, emergency, she usually communicates over text. Uh, and therefore, I'm able to answer and reply to her texts on my PC. So I actually see a use case for it. And this is something I've used quite a lot previously. <laughs> okay. Uh, to me, uh, that doesn't actually sound that important. I mean, if we're talking seconds here. Uh, this is not like a, a millisecond marketing decision. So nope. I don't, I'm not sure if I see the use case, but uh, to each, it's, uh, to each uh, his own. So. Uh, and keeping on the phone track, we are both using Android. And yep. in March, uh, a feature of Excel on Android was introduced that's now reached iOS. Have you seen the, the f short films of this? Uh, yeah, I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, I haven't actually tried it myself since I never ever use Excel on my phone. Uh, but <laughs> but then again, the feature looked absolutely brilliant when I saw a quick demo on it, like in your Twitter feed or something. Yeah. So yeah. it it looked absolutely amazing. But like I said, I don't ever use Excel on my phone, so I, it's not really of use for me. Yeah. And basically, what it is is the ability. So so the scenario is you get some kind of physical paper with a table on that you would like to get on your machine. Previously, you may have been forced then to create a table and enter all of this information yourself. But now in the Excel mobile app on iOS and Android, we can now use the camera to take a picture of a table on a paper and turn that into an Excel spreadsheet. Yep, yep, that's the one. Yep, and I think that's really useful again i think we see a, a small percentage of users perhaps but for the people that have been copying this kind of information previously this is probably a game changer because this will speed up things quite a lot the only thing i'm wondering is how big of a table can you take a picture of and get into a spreadsheet because what they've been showing is like 
uh, probably five or six columns and uh, ten rows or something like that. Yeah, but I wonder yeah. how how high that resolution can be and how big of a table you can add. Well, I suppose that might be a limitation in the camera resolution itself. Yeah, probably. So now I can tell my manager that, yeah, I need the high, the <laughs> highest resolution camera on my phone to import Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> Sounds like a good excuse. Absolutely. Any excuse is a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> so um, coming up in, in the coming weeks, Alexander is actually going to Ireland this week to Micro Warehouse to hold a one-day workshop course on how to migrate your SQL Server to Azure. Ah, nice. Since we are now closing into the end of support for um, SQL Server 2008 and 2008 R2, July 14th, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I think July 14th, 13th is the date for 2008 non-R2. Uh, isn't, ah, okay. isn't the R2 one the same as uh, Server I, I, 2008 R2? No, I actually think that SQL was a bit earlier. I, I may need to look into that, but I think that's the same. And then Server is in January next year. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, you will need to speed up your migration if you still have SQL servers running that old uh, versions, those old versions. And... We have spoken about this previously. If you can't migrate, you always have the option to buy extended support, which will be quite expensive, or migrate your existing 2008 SQL servers to Azure. So if you run your 2008 or 2008 R2 SQL server on a virtual machine in Azure, you get that extended support for free or included in that price, which is rather nice. Sure, sure. So Alexander will be doing that in Ireland for Micro Warehouse CSP Partners on Wednesday. So we hope that his voice is better by then. And myself, I'll be doing three talks next week, actually. So I'll be speaking at the Plural Site Connect in Stockholm and Copenhagen. So Stockholm on June 11th and Copenhagen on June 13th. And I'll be speaking about training inside of Atea and how we view training and how we work with closing that skills gap and how we create our training programs and so on. And then I'll also be speaking at a Windows Virtual Desktop partner event in Stockholm. So a partner event hosted by Microsoft in Stockholm on June 11th, that as well. And I'll be sharing how we see Windows Virtual Desktop from a partner perspective what our customers are already doing with it because we are already implementing Windows Virtual Desktop at a number of customers and also how we see this in a broader partner ecosystem. So that will be great fun. Yeah, sounds like it. And uh, again, lots of traveling for you. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, actually a little bit yep. of interested in this, uh, the Windows Virtual Desktop thing. I, I mean, uh, I've heard that it is getting a lot of attention as of late. Uh, so my question was actually if you had uh, began actual implementations of it as of yet, but you really answered that already. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's still in public preview, so be aware of that. But we have started implementations of it in, in several customers, both in terms of vanilla Windows Virtual Desktop, but also in combination with Citrix, especially. 
Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. We're looking yeah. forward to hearing more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, again, it's a very good way to broaden yourself in terms of technology. Like if you're a an Azure person, uh, you will be up and running with Windows Auto Desktop quite easily, I would say, because you know most of the things. And if you're a Microsoft 365 or Workplace person, you this is a good way to learn Azure and a very good way to combine Microsoft 365 and Azure skills in one platform. Yeah. And speaking of that, and this is something we didn't mention uh, when me and Alexander spoke about this in uh, the last episode we made after Citrix Synergy. IGEL, so the thin client manufacturer, which we aren't supposed to say, but that's what they're mostly famous for. <laughs> uh, they are working on supporting Windows Virtual Desktop on their Linux clients. So IGEL okay. OS Linux clients. And they will share more info on that on Inspire and Ignite later this year. But this is something that I find super cool. Um, I had the pleasure to be one of the featured speakers at Agile Disrupt earlier this year. And this is one of the things I spoke a lot to with um, on with some Agile representatives. And it's great to see that those discussions and that this technology really are changing end user compute and how integrated a Microsoft platform can be in a Linux client. So I'm really looking forward to see what they are going to support and how they're going to support it and what the experience will be. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I actually really like companies that are like, uh, let's say, moving forwards as fast as Microsoft are. So if Microsoft has this uh, Windows Virtual Desktop in preview and companies are already jumping on that, I think it's, it's a good thing for us all. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, in the olden days, you know, companies, they might be delayed by six months or something, even after the feature has gone, like, generally available uh, before yep. they even have a preview on their own. So it's great to see that uh, companies are actually trying to keep up with uh, Microsoft's own previews. Yep. And we'll see when this episode is being released. But if you listen to this prior to June 6th, there will actually be an Ask Me Anything webcast um, with Peter Viglieven, one of the PMs for Windows Virtual Desktop, uh, which you can register to and either view uh, on the day or see the recording afterwards. But there will be a really good opportunity to ask questions and get answers to everything you want to know about Windows Virtual Desktop. So that registration link will be in the show notes as well. Great. And I think that's everything we have time for this time. And we will be back as soon as we can and hopefully we'll soon be able to gather all three of us again <laughs> uh, thank you for listening and have a great time see you soon see you soon bye bye